can be seated. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll be reading verses 30 through to the end of the chapter. And here you will uh, hear, of course, the, the story of the end of the bullfight on the mountain, uh, as one person put it. Uh, it's interesting. It's the only bullfight I know of that began with, with uh, two bulls being dead already. Um, but obviously you know that uh, Elijah had challenged um, Ahab, who was promoting Baal worship, uh, the worship that had been introduced by his wicked queen Jezebel, uh, the worship, unfortunately, of her childhood in Sidon. He had challenged him to bring the prophets of Baal, all 400 of them, to the mountain. And there they would have a contest, a contest by fire. The God who answered, he said to them, should be acknowledged as the true God. So if Baal answered and lit the sacrifice on fire, he was God. But if Jehovah if Yahweh answered, he is the true God of Israel. Um, and as we shall see, as we saw last week, Baal could not answer because Baal did not exist. And so now it is Elijah's turn. Having given them every advantage possible, he now uh, takes up the task of calling upon the Lord. So we'll see what happens then. But before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word. Let's ask for his help. Lord God, my Father, you, you know how weak a man I am. I am not capable, O oh Lord, of opening up your word and my own power and declaring it to your people. And certainly I can't convert anyone. I cannot change hearts, Lord. A heart of stone uh, will remain a heart of stone if it's only my words that are preached towards it. But I know, O oh Lord, that you can and you do change hearts. You, O oh Lord, have a mighty power to save. And I pray, O oh Lord, that that would be working today. May, O oh Lord, the lost be called and their eyes opened to see the fearful plight they're in. And may, O oh Lord, those who have been saved and who have already closed with Christ, may their confidence be enhanced. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Reading 1 Kings, starting with verse, uh, 1 Kings 18, starting with verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seers of seed. And he put, he put the word in order, wood rather in order, cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this day, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As we uh, read this particular section, it's worthy of note that everything that Elijah does has a purpose. There's no random actions, no frenzied activity, nothing done simply out of excitement. He does everything carefully and deliberately. For instance, there is an altar on this mountain. It has been wrecked, apparently, by the Baal worshippers. But he commands them to take 12 stones from this altar to help rebuild a new altar upon which the bull will rest. And why 12 stones? Why 12 in particular? Well, 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. For so they were called the people of God. They were a people who were supposed to belong to him a people to whom he had made great covenant promises and whom they were systematically breaking those promises that he had made to them. They were breaking the covenant. But this symbolized, or or he hoped it would symbolize, obviously, the reunification of the nation that had been divided since the death of King Solomon. Now, for this to be a thoroughgoing reformation, the people didn't simply need to I'll acknowledge the objective truth that the Lord God is the only God, they needed to actually repent and reform and return to the way of sacrifice and worship that the Lord had ordained. But Elijah was beginning that process, starting it with the, with the right way, with uh, the, the right worship of God, the right preaching of the truth hopefully gathering the tribes back together, calling them back to the faith of their fathers, reminding them of the national covenant that God had made with this people, back to biblical worship, simple biblical worship according to God's instructions. So he rebuilt the Lord's altar for the Lord's people in the Lord's name, as one commentator has put it. From the old altar, he took the 12 stones, hoping that this would be the beginning of a new revival based upon the old paths that the Lord had established. Now, obviously, uh, Elijah wants to be absolutely as above board. He is, uh, as he can be, he is supremely confident as this, this match begins, and he wants there to be no question whatsoever of him cheating, of him trying to take an advantage. So he digs this trench around the altar after he builds it, after the wood is set in place and the bull is set upon it. The next thing he does is he builds this trench around it, and then he asks his helpers to go down to the river Kishon and to to fill up jars of water and to bring them up. What's he going to do? He's going to do something that seems to make no sense whatsoever. He's going to pour the water all over the altar, all over the bull, and make it as absolutely sodden as possible. It's going to be the soggiest sacrifice in all of history. Not only that, it would fill the trench, so there would be an area of separation between the onlookers and the altar itself. There's no way that Elijah could have secretly waded through the waters and tossed in a flame. And even if he did, he could have put a torch to it after they were done covering it three times, and it still would not have taken light. 
So he apportions the bull according to the instructions of the Lord. And he who had given every advantage to the prophets of Baal, he'd given them all the time they wanted. They'd taken six hours dancing about and in frenzy, slashing themselves with knives and lances, letting the blood gush forth, screaming, calling out to, to Baal. He gives himself instead every possible handicap, the single prophet of the Lord. So everything is now done and ready. And what does he do next? He simply prays to the Lord. He asks the Lord, though, to remind the people of the covenant that he had made with them. That's something that we should be doing, brothers and sisters. Whenever we enter into the presence of the Lord, we shouldn't simply blurt out you know, the, the, the worldly stuff that's filling our hearts. Rather, we should go back to God and his promises, the things he's already done, the things that he says he will do. Good songs don't simply, for instance, worship songs, hymns, songs, spiritual songs, are things that should be rehearsing the goodness of God admitting that we know who he is, what he has said he will do, instead of merely saying, I feel this way, I feel this way, I feel this way, repeat 30 or 40 times. That is not good worship. Worship that is based upon the revelation of God, that is good worship. And so finally he asks that he would be vindicated as the prophet of God. Let it be that everyone would see that I have not spoken words of my own devising, that I have not stood here and said, thus saith the Lord, when in fact it was just me talking. He says, let it be that they see in my words your hand. Let them understand I'm just the messenger. The message itself comes from you. Vindicate yourself, vindicate your religion, vindicate your prophet for your people's well-being. It is Elijah's desire, not only that God would be glorified, but that the people of the nation of Israel would return to the only true God, that they would put aside their apostasy and that they would know that there is a God who answers. There was a God he has just displayed who cannot answer because he is nothing at all. Baal is nothing and has no power. Now he says, show them you are the God who answers. If I can draw your attention to the statement in your folder, the Sabbath meditation, take a look at this. It is profound. After six hours of prayer to Baal, Elijah prayed for less than a minute The power of Elijah's prayer did not depend on its length, its eloquence, or its volume. A prophet has to pray long and loud only if his God is hard of hearing, but Elijah's God hears and answers. The power of his prayer did not lie in the prayer itself, but in the God to whom he prayed. Thus, Elijah prayed the way that Jesus later taught his disciples to pray. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you, ask, before you ask him. So he prayed a prayer that was simple, straightforward, biblical, and heartfelt. He believed in the God whom he was praying to, and he believed that this God would answer his prayers, and then it happened. Now, after covering the bull with so much water, 
digging this trench and doing all of these things, it would have been something for just a fire to start gently underneath the bull and consume the wood and so on. But that's not how God answers. God doesn't want anyone to wonder if they've been tricked or if this was an amazing coincidence or a random bolt of lightning or something like that. So he answers with something like a nuclear blast from heaven, phasers on full, fires down on this bull. It is a good thing that the trench had been dug, keeping the people back as well, because like the stones, they might have melted were they too close. Thankfully, the fire was concentrated on the altar and the things about it, but everything is consumed. The fire from the Lord falls. It consumes the burnt offering, the stones, the dust, everything. There's nothing left. No bull, no stones, no dust, no water. This was the Lord God Almighty answering, coming down from heaven, showing that his power was infinite. He is not just the God who answers. He is the God who can answer and do all that he says he will do. If we were to pray to a God who was very kind, like a grandmother, and who wanted to hear, oh, come into my, you know, and it's, it's wonderful to have somebody who is sympathetic and empathetic who listens to us, but if we come to them with our troubles and they can do nothing to help us, it's not much of a God. This is a God who not only cares about his people and has a compassionate heart towards them, but he is a God who can do something as well. He can do something about whatever our situation is. Now, we sometimes forget that on two different sides. This is the amazing thing. Christians will sometimes say, oh, this is too small. I can't bring it to God. He's too busy, you know, arranging galaxies and, you know, uh, creating supernovas and, and the affairs of nations and things like this. So my, my weakness or my needing to get a job or my toe problem, uh, this is much too small for the Lord of the universe. I'll just handle this myself. And then on the other side... There's this bizarre, okay, he created the heavens and the earth in the space of six days. I believe that he rose again from the dead for my salvation, but he can't change this aspect of my life. My marriage, it's too big even for God. It's too much of a problem. He can't do that. Or my job, or my whatever. It's too big for God. There is no problem too big for God. And there is no problem too small. They're all equally easy to him. Understand that. So go to him with whatever problem you have, whatever need you have. This is the God who answered. Now, we're reminded here, obviously, that God is also a consuming fire, so do not take the Lord lightly. I, I am reminded of all the men who have pointed out that these days we do not treat God like the Almighty. We treat him like the old matey, like the guy you sit in the basement and play PlayStation with while eating nachos. This is not the God who people think of so often on Sunday morning. This is the God who consumed Nadab and Abihu by fire because they worshipped him the wrong way, because they worshipped him not according to his instructions. They did not treat him as holy. We need to remember he is the holy, holy, holy God. The people see this demonstration of his power, and what do they do? they fall flat on their faces. There are certain ways of, of standing before God in worship. Uh, traditionally in the temple, the people stood while they worshiped God. And then in private worship, they would fall to their knees before God. But when we are really awestruck and we wish to implore God, 
we fall upon our faces and acknowledge that he is the amazing almighty. And in the old sense of the word, the awful God, the God who inspires awe in all who see him. And they are filled with this and they cry out. It's not merely, they they don't just stand there and go, that was impressive. All right, yeah, one, zero, God wins. All right, that's a W. And then move on. What do they do? They acknowledge the Lord. He is God. Yahweh is Elohim. He alone is the God who rules over the universe. They are convinced objectively. They no longer, in this sense, have to walk by faith. Because they have seen the fire of God fall from heaven. No one can deny it. This is not a natural occurrence. This is not a weird coincidence. This is not a random chance. This is God. The Lord has answered them. We are reminded by the author of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. They are filled at that moment with godly fear and reverence. This is a God who is not to be trifled with. Now, I want to make a few applications. In fact, the majority of my sermon, I think, is probably going to be applications, or the rest of it at least. The first is this. You see here, there's a right way to worship God and a wrong way to worship God. The right way to worship God is according to his instructions. It's according to his revelation. We remember he is the one who is receiving our worship, and he is the one who has a right to determine the worship that we receive. This is such a simple principle. You and I cannot climb into the mind of God and decide what he likes and what he dislikes. And we don't need to. He tells us. You could put it to a person and say, well, if you were going to be honored in some way, how would you like to be honored? And the person could tell you. But if you attempt to come up with things you like to honor that person, they might be very upset by that. Well, it was supposed to be honoring me. You're actually honoring yourself by the way that you're trying to honor me. And that, I'm afraid, is the way that a lot of our worship goes. It's about us, not about God. It's about what we like, not about what God likes. He never told us to do these things, yet we do them. I received a meme a while back uh, from uh, a friend who subscribed to the Calvinist Humor site. And it's a fellow standing there saying, It's okay, you worship God your way, and I'll worship God his way. So that really sums it up. How do you worship God? Do you worship him your way? Or do you worship him his way according to his instructions? The prophets of of Baal had, had put on quite the spectacle. They had danced about the altar in frenzy, their hands, you know, waving, shouting, screaming, cutting themselves doing everything that they possibly could to, to whip up this, this frenzied stuff. You know, had that, uh, I'm, I'm sure that most people were very impressed by the way that they worship, but for all of the blood, for all of the dancing, for all the six hours of, of singing, come on ball, light my fire, they did not have any effect because it was all disordered. It was God's, and please understand this, although you have the worshipers of Baal, and then you have Elijah, the worshiper of God, and then the people who are sort of in between, all of them are God's creatures, and all of them owed worship to Yahweh. All of them owed worship to Jehovah. 
And yet, here we have a group of people worshiping a false god, using false worship, and it is as nothing. God is not impressed. Now, one of the things that we need to remember is we need zeal. Elijah was zealous for the Lord, but not frenzy, not, not anarchy, not craziness, not the completely indecent and disorderly worship that so often God is, is offered these days. And know this, false prophets love false worship. They love the imaginations just as they love to say, thus saith the Lord, and he hasn't said anything like that. And that goes on in supposedly Christian churches all around the world today. The prophet stands up and he declares something that's just his imagination, and then they follow their own worship desires, and they love to have it so. But that is not the right way. We are supposed to worship according to the way that God tells us. Worship that isn't according to God's revelation is not pleasing to him. And he's made that clear again and again. And he does not ask us to do things that are self-destructive. For instance, the prophets of Baal, they dance around the altar. And then to attempt to get his attention, they begin to cut themselves, to wound themselves in their worship. Europe at the moment is appalled because the, uh, the, the, the time of Ashura within the Shiite calendar is going, upon, uh, going on. And so now streets, and, and one of the things that's appalling the Europeans is they never really realized how many Shiite worshipers there are in their countries are filled with half-naked young men hitting themselves, and in some cases wounding themselves, and, and shouting at the top of their lungs as they attempt to symbolize the, the murder of Ali or his massacre and their, their, uh, their worship service. One of the things that is happening is these Europeans are realizing how, and this is, this is the great lie that has been told to so many people in Europe and in the United States. All religions are the same. They're all the same, and we're all worshiping the same God. And they see exactly how different, like Baal worship and the worship of Yahweh, how different they actually are. And how in this one, you, you hurt yourself. The God you worship, Allah instructs you to, to hurt yourself. And they are. And something is digging back into them. You know, this, this isn't right. They don't understand why, but yeah, they're right, it's not right. Unfortunately, they, like the people of Israel, had abandoned the true God and his true worship. Elijah is calling them back. God is calling us back to the true worship that we should give him. Simple, biblical worship. The right sacrifice, that of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we don't have to whip ourselves into a frenzy or wound ourselves or, or do anything that the Lord has not commanded. We do have to sacrifice, and that is to sacrifice the things that would do us no good anyway and set our mind on eternity. So the first thing we see is there's a right way to worship God and a wrong way to worship God. The right way to worship God is according to his instructions and through his covenant promises. Secondly, we hear, we see here, believe it or not, actually, uh, one of the most important things that occurs within evangelism, namely that, that we can do nothing of ourselves in evangelism. We can preach the word, but if there's going to be a change of heart, if people are going to be converted, it has to be God's work in answering prayers, in changing hearts, in answering with a, with a fire that fills us with a change. Many people had attempted to persuade me. I went through a moral philosophy course. Most of the teachers, this is in the University of St. Andrews, in fact, three years of moral philosophy. Uh, most of the teachers were dialectical materialists, Marxists, uh, and they were trying to teach me that there was nothing. 
uh, nihilism, existentialism, whatever you want, uh, you know, whatever variety of nothingness uh, that was being served up, they served it. But there was one teacher, he was a deist, and he attempted to to teach everybody that there was deism and that there were certain universal natural laws not set by God in the Christian sense. He didn't believe in the Christian God, but that there were natural laws that, that governed the universe and so on. Didn't convince me at all. Why? Because I didn't want to be convinced. I had no interest also in this deistic God of his. So it just made me angry. I mocked. That was it. Because my heart was unchanged. It was actually the preaching of the gospel and the falling of the Holy Spirit upon me, changing my heart forever that made that change. The most important thing that you can do in evangelism is not come up with amazing uh, arguments supporting the existence of God. The most important thing that you can do is to do what Elijah did, pray. Pray and then preach the word of God, the God who answers, and he will. This man prayed that God would turn the hearts of Israel back to the the covenant Lord, and he did. Now, believe it or not, you can do this in your own age, and he will answer. I'm living testimony to the fact that God does answer those prayers. And there are countless other people out there who it seems are impossible. It cannot be. They are like the bull covered in water, as soggy as possible. God could not possibly break through to them. But in his appointed time, he can fall like fire upon them and change them radically. I have seen that happen with some of the greatest opponents of the gospel. Happened with Paul, didn't it, on the way to Damascus? (laughs) The Christians didn't believe it was possible. Uh, You remember when Ananias is, is told, go and baptize Paul, his answer is, whoa, you got the wrong man, Lord. No, he's he's sent to destroy us. This is impossible. But God said, go. The sovereign Lord had decided that this would be his instrument to change the Gentiles, the man who had hated their religion, now loved it. Now, a lot of people say, wouldn't it be nice if God answered prayers in the way that, you know, the dramatic way that he answered on the mountaintop that day? But, brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, I have seen so many dramatic answers to prayer just in my time as a Christian. I've seen them. I've heard about them. I could give you examples again and again from my own life where God has done what seemed to me to be absolutely impossible in in so many different ways. But I'm not going to. I'm going to give you an example from the life of another man, an evangelist by the name of George Mueller. He was born in Prussia. He was a German, but he came to the United Kingdom to evangelize Jews. And as it turned out, his, his greatest contributions to the Christian ministry weren't in preaching in, in a church, but actually in the work that he did with orphans. His uh, work with orphans began in 1836 as they brought, uh, he and his wife brought orphan girls into their own home. And then gradually they rented more properties on the same street until they had so many kids that the neighbors began to complain, and so they eventually began the process of systematically setting up orphanages. During his lifetime, he cared for 10,024 orphans. One of the wonderful things was he was a Prussian, so he was a German, so he was a record keeper. So he kept meticulous records and a diary of the events of his life. Now, one of the most amazing things about Mueller is he never once sent out what we do all the, day, all the time when we're preparing missions, when we're raising money for orphanages or hoping to support it. What do we do? We advertise. 
We tell the people of God, God's doing this wonderful work in Rwanda or Fayetteville or wherever. Please help us. Donate so-and-so. Here's the link. Go and so on. He never did that. Although he built, ended up building five homes that cost more than 100,000 pounds each, which was a fortune in that time, he never once asked for donations. They just came in. He didn't even solicit food donations. They came in one evening. I'll give you... Uh, an example, this one was attested in his diary and in the records of several people around him. And this was something that happened in his life all the time. The children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat, the housekeeper of the orphanage informed George, George Mueller. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables. He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide food for the children, as he always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you. I will bring it in. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk. George smiled as the milkman brought in ten large cans of milk. It was just enough for the 300 thirsty children that occurred again and again and again what an amazing series of coincidences huh no this is the god who answers the problem i find that in our not seeing this is because we don't ask you do not have because you do not ask george Mueller was a man committed to prayer just as elijah was a man committed to prayer not repetitious ridiculous prayers five times a day bowing and scraping using beads anything just simple heartfelt prayers according to his word speaking to somebody he knew all right let me get to the final application perhaps the most difficult what of the application of the final part of the story the slaughter of the prophets of baal go thou and do likewise no i'm not going to say that Do not say that the pastor said that. First, in the law, as it was given by Moses, there were plenty of commands uh, that indicated that what we saw there was actually a judicial application of the first commandment to this particular nation, the covenanted nation there. The first commandment is, of course, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Okay. So in Deuteronomy 13.6 and Deuteronomy 13, the entire chapter is about this. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend who is as your own soul secretly entices you saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall I pity him. You, but nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And then later on, another, just one more example, Deuteronomy 18.20, where it talks about the prophet, how you can tell between the false prophet and the true prophet. If the false prophet says, thus saith the Lord, and it doesn't happen, he's a false prophet. I'm guarding the false prophet. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So Elijah is not simply, this is not a retributive act of vengeance. He's not simply killing them because he is really angry at them. Rather, this is ordered by the Lord. That was the law that they were supposed to have been following in Israel, but had not been. It was no different from Phineas killing the, the man who had, been, uh, who had taken the woman of Moab and was committing uh, fornication, but a, a religious fornication in view of the entire assembly. 
What we need to remember is that idolatry, false prophecy, false worship is detestable. It was a death penalty offense, and we treat it so lightly, like it's nothing at all. Sometimes I think that we uh, fear that all is lost, that God is powerless, and therefore we have to come to terms with the false worshipers, the idolaters, and so on. Let us come to some sort of compromise. Let us seek terms from their hands before they destroy us. As though the God of the universe who answers with fire does not still exist and is not still on the side of his people. It's a ridiculous supposition. What do we learn from the word of God? Well, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 19.11. This is really the end of false worship here. This is what's going to happen. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who is that, incidentally? It's Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the enemies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to together to make war against him. What an imposing spectacle that will be. All the forces that set themselves against Christendom and against Christ, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he had deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's the end of apostasy. When Christ returns, it will come to an end. No more false prophets, no more false religion forever. Only fire and damnation. So therefore, don't be associated with them. Do not compromise them uh, with them. If they rise up in the congregation or denomination in which you worship, warn them of the dire consequences of what they're doing. You are teaching God's people to sin. When they say, do this, and the Lord hasn't said it. When they say, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord hasn't said it, they are teaching the people of God to sin and they are bringing upon themselves the consequences of a false prophet. And believe it or not, the consequences of the false prophet at the end of time in judgment are the direst of them all. The greatest judgment that will fall will fall upon those who misled the people of God and who preached falsehood. And if they will not repent, then church discipline has to be applied. One of the things that makes me so, or made me so angry in my time as a presbyter is you would have a false prophet. You would have somebody who was clearly a wolf in the midst of the congregation, and then the other guys would close around him and become the Wolf Protection League. Ugh. Brother, we have to forgive him. I know he's been preaching outrageous falsehoods, 
and savaging the, the Lord's flock, but what if it was you? Well, then actually you guys should be disciplining me. <laughs> That's the answer. It's not like, oh, okay, I know that he murdered all of those people, but if it was you, wouldn't you want mercy? Well, probably yes, but should I receive it is the question. And the answer is no, not in this case. John Goldingay, uh, who is, uh, I'm going to leave with, with what he says here. Goldingay uh, is an Anglican. He is the consummate theological moderate. All right, this is a man who is always trying to take the middle position. But when he's confronted with this, he actually, in his not so useful commentary on First Kings, actually gets it at this point. He says, there are occasions when God says, that's it, and takes desperate action. It was one of those occasions. Like Jesus' warning about hell, this story is meant to leave us horrified and to make us face the possible consequences of making the wrong choice about whether to follow the real God who has made himself known to us. Understand this. God has made himself known to you. He has answered. What will you choose? Understand the consequences of making the wrong choice. You don't want to be on the wrong side of the line in Revelation 19. You want to be clothed in white, following the Lamb, not standing with the beast and the armies of the false prophet. Please, for your own sake, for heaven's sake, choose life. Choose Christ. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, we are so thankful that you are the God who speaks. You are the God who warns. You've sent prophet after prophet to your people. And you have shown yourself to be true throughout history. There were so many times, Lord, when you answered with rain, you answered with provision, you answered your people because they cried out to you. We are thankful for that. Now, Lord, I pray you would do that work of changing hearts. If there is anyone here who does not yet know you, may this be the day of their turning and their repentance. And may they walk with you all the way to heaven and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.